This is Scott McNamara, and this is What's New in Adaptive Physical Education, bringing you another exciting episode. And today I have uh, three wonderful scholars and enthusiasts in the field of adaptive physical education and, and maybe a little bit in that more broad area of adaptive physical activity. And we have Lainey Case, who is from Oregon State University. I have An Andrea Telefero from West Virginia University, and I have Kathy McKay from James Madison University. We are all here today to talk a little bit about you and get to know you all, but also uh, we want to learn a little bit about contact theory uh, and service learning in adaptive physical activity kind of undergraduate programs. Maybe we can expand a little bit past undergraduate programs. We'll talk a little bit about that. I think that this theory that we're going to talk about is a big part of what we are trying to do as a field and trying to improve attitudes towards people with disabilities in a PA setting. And then also, I, I find that service learning component of undergraduate programs to be so fundamental to us training future scholars um, and practitioners in our fields. So before we even start broaching that, that big topic, I want you all just to just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background in adaptive physical activity, if anyone can start. All right. So um, I'm Lainey Case, and this is my first time on the podcast. I'm very excited. Um, I'm a fourth year doctoral student from Oregon State University, and I'm studying kinesiology with an, adopt, an option in adapted physical activity. I work directly with Dr. Sam Logan at Oregon State. And then I'm also co-advised by Dr. J.K. Yoon from East Carolina University. And I was introduced to adapted physical activity as an undergrad. I actually took an adapted physical activity course and we had a associate, an associated practicum on Friday mornings. Um, and that's really what kind of sparked an interest in the concept of adapted physical activity in the field. Um, and from there, I went and got my master's at Oregon State and got some exposure to research working with children with autism in gross motor assessment settings. And then from there, um, I kind of took a step back from my own education or structured education, and I started working at the Chico State Autism Clinic, where I taught gross motor skills to children with autism for about two years. Um, and then I left, came back to Oregon State and am now in my fourth year. So right now I'm a, a graduate student fellow on a doctoral training grant. So my time is spent on research, teaching and engaging in our service learning programs. Very cool. And, and maybe we'll go back to that point about uh, the service learning program in that first class kind of introducing you to, to the field. All right, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go down the list. Andrea, you're next on my on my Zoom uh, list. Great. So my name's Andrea Taliaferro. Uh, this is also my first time on a podcast, so thanks for having us. I'm currently an associate professor at West Virginia University. Um, this is my 10th year at WVU, and I actually hold a joint appointment within the College of Physical Activity and Sports Sciences 
and the Davis College of Agriculture, Natural Resources and Design. Um, I hold a master's degree and a PhD in the area of kinesiology, adaptive physical education from the University of Virginia. Uh, and prior to beginning my doctoral studies, I was a practicing adapted physical education specialist for six years uh, at the pre-K through the post high school levels. And then I also taught general physical education for a year. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, in my current position at WVU, uh, I contribute and I have contributions to my department, college and university across teaching, research and service. So practicum and adaptive P practicum kind of really fit nicely in all of those areas, teaching, research and service for me. I've taught a lot of courses at both the undergraduate and the graduate levels in the areas of adapted physical activity. And I've now 10 years of experience directing clinical experience or service learning opportunities uh, in the area of adapted physical activity. So here at WVU, I am the director of what we refer to as the Friday Adapted Physical Education Program, which provides weekly adapted physical education programming for in a typical pre-COVID year, uh, over 80 school-aged children with disabilities in the areas of aquatics and motor skills. Obviously now with COVID, that practicum has changed because um, we can't have that many people together or on campus. Uh, so currently our practicum is a combination of in-person and virtual experiences uh, with the in-person component, uh, working with adults with disabilities at a local community organization. Uh, so our practicum actually provides a hands-on clinical experience for WVU students across a variety of majors. And then my research focuses on minimizing health disparities for individuals with disabilities through the improvement of inclusive physical activity opportunities, uh, specifically looks at teacher and coach preparation and self-efficacy towards teaching students with disabilities. Very cool. And that's, yeah, we, I don't even put in the question about that COVID stuff, but yeah, I mean, uh, our program too, it's been, you know, we're doing these weird virtual things and it's definitely... I wonder if contact theory is being appropriately applied to um, to these settings. Kathy, uh, do you want to briefly kind of introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm Kathy McKay. This is my second time on the podcast, so I'm really excited to be back. We, uh, My first time, we were talking about the Paralympic School Day Program. That's the International Paralympic Committee's Paralympic School Day Program. And I was really lucky to be joined, joined by... Um, a graduate student and a member of a, the Charlottesville Cardinals wheelchair basketball team, as well as a um, the president of the current president of Vapored, um, who was a teacher who implemented the program. Anyhow, really excited to be back on the podcast. So, Scott, thanks for the invitation. Um, I am um, an uh, assistant professor at James Madison University. This is my sixth year at JMU. Um, similar to Andrea, I got my doctorate degree at the University of Virginia in adaptive physical education with um, sub areas of teacher education, pedagogy, and curriculum and instruction. And prior, prior to that, I uh, I did my undergraduate work at JMU and my uh, graduate, my master's at Virginia Tech. Um, and I have uh, about 15 years of experience teaching K-8 um, physical education, health and physical education, um, mainly focusing um, with our youngest learners. I was a motor learning uh, specialist at a private school up in New York City for um, almost eight years, uh, working with our youngest learners, threes, fours, and Ks, and then have also taught in both the public and private setting. Um, and my um, my work with adaptive physical activity and adaptive physical education is um, spearheaded through the work I do with the Paralympic School Day and Paralympic Skill Lab programs. Um, my 
research interests focus on changing attitudes and perspectives um, towards disability and disability sport through Paralympic and disability sport education and awareness. And um, so as such, I uh, am very passionate about contact theory and applying contact theory in educational settings. Um, and then also enjoy research related to the lived experiences of um, pre-service and in-service teachers related to um, the Paralympic School Day and Paralympic Skill Lab program, um, as well as the athlete themselves in terms of their um, adapted PE and PE experiences um, and their experiences uh, leading the program. So that is a little bit about me. Awesome. Well, uh, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, I brought uh, the three of you here because you all have done research in uh, in using contact theory or with service learning programs in APA. And uh, I think it's an interesting idea what I know about contact theory, it's an interesting kind of theory to apply to our programs. And I think it's so fundamental to kind of who we are as a field. So um, like, you know, I, we've now said contact theory, theory 30 times um, and we haven't defined it yet. So I was hoping uh, one of you or, or, or all of you could kind of give your definition or description of what contact theory is. Sure. Um, so contact theory um, was originally introduced by uh, Alport in 1954, and it states that contact with people different from oneself will lead to attitude change if presented under the right conditions. So contact theory sought to understand the nature of contact that will produce positive attitude change. So when I put that into like normal language, it, it's basically if we spend if there's certain contact variables that if we can spend time with people who are different than ourselves, uh, will our perceptions of that out group or those people who we perceive to be different change as a result of this um, time spent? And for contact to be for contact theory to be brought to life successfully, the research indicates that there's four components that needs to need to be met. And you'll see these in different ways across the research uh, since um, Alport originally introduced this in 1954. But I would say the research of the past 20 years, uh, definitely recent in the past decade, is focusing on four main components, which are equal status contact, um, cooperation, personal interactions, and support from authority. And so when we break those down, equal status contact is, is contact where no one person is over the other. So there isn't somebody in an inferior role that instead um, the group is feels like, um, because if there is an inferior role, existing stereotypes will be reinforced. So this idea of equal status contact is that um, the, everyone in the, in, in the group is equal status. Uh, cooperation is pretty simple. It's not competitive, it's not solo, but instead it's working cooperative, cooperatively uh, towards common goals. Uh, personal interactions is the idea that um, it's not just about being around the different folks or the out group, but instead that it's um, it's contact that's regard, regarded as exceptional. It's contact that is, that is meaningful and personal and that there's multiple um, avenues to have that meaningful contact. And then lastly, support from authority. It's just that idea that um, 
there's something uh, bigger that is supporting this idea that it's important that these two groups are together. And so in our case, oftentimes that would be support from the authority, which is the professor in the class setting up the program or the executive director of the organization where the program is being offered, um, or even up to a diversity and inclusion council um, in a school setting, it could be the principal. So it's just that idea that, that there's community support or authoritative support for the contact to be happening. So those are the four components of contact theory in a nutshell. I think the only thing that I would add that could potentially could like segue to our connection um, to contact theory of our field is that the theory in the research and when it was created, it, it's best applied, or best applies to contact between people within majority and minority groups. So studies have shown that, you know, favorable attitudes have come out of contact concerning race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, like, and people with disabilities. So it's not, I, even though we're about to most likely talk about people with disabilities in contact with them, um, or contact between people with and without, without disabilities, it's been applied to a lot of different groups of people. So, you know, do you feel uh, as a group that, um, you know, these service learning programs and, and just real briefly, you know, pretty much every adapted physical activity or education uh, undergraduate program has a, a service learning component or if not multiple where they're working with individuals with disabilities. And my first kind of question to, you know, your description of contact theory and those components, are we applying it correctly to and well to these programs across universities? So what's interesting about that question is that, and I feel like I've had this question come up even back as far as when I defended my dissertation and it was largely about contact theory, is this idea that um, can we, the equal status is oftentimes the one um, component of contact theory that, that um, professionals in the field would question whether or not that's really being applied correctly. And um, Marty Block was my mentor at UVA, and he made it a point to um, help support my argument um, during my dissertation defense in saying, it's not that we are saying that that the in-group and the out-group or the majority and the minority group, in this case, let's say it's people with disabilities, that we're not saying that um, there's all of a sudden going to be, uh, everyone is going to view it as equal if we have a whole bunch of folks who use wheelchairs and a whole bunch of folks who do not, and uh, poof, we're going to be equal because we apply contact theory. The point that we're trying to get to is that if we go with how we know uh, generally society views individuals with disabilities, and that's kind of any type of disability. Society views individuals with disabilities, generally speaking, as um, inferior or as an out group. And so if, if we are trying to hit that equal status, what we're trying to do when we're um, having meaningful contact with individuals with disabilities is we're trying to change perceptions and attitudes so that these college students participating in service learning, for example, view these individuals or this group of people as equal to them, that we don't feel sorry for them. We don't feel like we need to help them. We don't feel like they they can't do all of these things. That instead, we see them as equal to us, that they are human beings with different abilities who are able to thrive just like everyone is able to thrive. And so when you look at it that way, like 
we're not going to be able to see equal status at like if a bunch of Paralympic athletes come in for an education day and I want to hit equal status contact between sixth graders and Paralympic athletes or between college students and Paralympic athletes. Well, no, the general college students probably not going to ever be equal to a gold medal winning Paralympian. But unfortunately in our society, we already don't view that gold medal Paralympian as elite. We unfortunately societally view them as inferior or lesser if we go with societal norms. So again, it's that idea of let's let's start to see all of these individuals as equal to us and not inferior to us, which is what our societal norms usually advance. Yeah, and to build upon um, what Kathy has said, I think um, I agree that contact theory can inform AP practicum, uh, but I agree with what Kathy said that especially I think in the practicum that I direct uh, that equal status and common goal piece is often not a focus of my traditional AP practicum, where I have college students that are in the teacher role who are working with school-age learners who are in the student role. Um, but I think that that equal status piece can be reinforced through other opportunities. For example, the Paralympic School Day opportunities, like Kathy has talked about, uh, working with same age Peers who have disabilities can help to promote that common goal, even if it's not necessarily inherent in the practicum. Um, but what I think is that contact, while contact theory I think is extremely important and relevant to AP practicum, I particularly like to layer it with other theories that focus on attitude change and improvement. So for example, self-efficacy theory or Kolb's model of experiential learning, I think all of those working together with contact theory can really help to promote that positive attitude change uh, that we're looking at uh, for our students and for outcomes of our undergraduate students within practicum experiences. I'm gonna build upon what uh, everyone said and kind of going back to what your original question was, Scott, about um, you know, how, how as a field are we, are we you know, doing as with these practicum and in terms of improving attitudes? And that's just a really hard question to ask because we don't are to answer because we don't really know what's happening nationally. Um, so, but what I will say is that what we do know from literature that has looked at, uh, like measured what's happening in practicum or in courses, um, not all courses actually have a hands-on experience or service learning experience. Um, there has been a study though that has said that the most commonly indicated goal was to improve attitudes through providing hands-on experience. So we know that that is a goal um, and an objective, at least through the eyes of instructors or through um, program staff. And something else that I wanted to note was um, that you know it, it is difficult to, when you have a practicum or a serving learning experience and maybe uh, students only get one term of that, in their entire uh, like student life or their entire education, you kind of have to prioritize, okay, is do I need to prepare this teacher um, to then teach children with disabilities in the future? Or like, should I focus on attitudes? And I don't think we know enough about strategies that um, align with both the contact theory or attitudinal theories and, uh, improving teacher competence and self-efficacy. So, um, and that's just, that that's obviously my background. We may know more, but um, 
I've noticed that misalignment quite a bit in studies on service learning and improving attitudes among college students. Yeah, and to build upon uh, what you just said, Lady, I think that's a really good point. You know, in our field, we know and research has found that practicum experiences are an essential and integral component of those introductory AP courses, although not every AP course does have a practicum experience. Um, but research has described and students have described, pre-service students have described their preparation as being most meaningful when they do have those hands-on experiences. Um, you know, research has shown that AP coursework combined with practicum can have favorable uh, changes in things like attitudes, uh, so favorable attitudinal changes, uh, and looking at pre-service teachers' competency towards working with learners with disabilities, things like positive beliefs, perceived competence, attitude, self-efficacy. But I think one key point is that just having an experience doesn't necessarily result in those positive outcomes. The quality of the practicum experience may very well be more important than either the time or the duration or even having an experience. So, you know, research has found that those practicum experiences are, that are positive and meaningful can have a favorable effect on those attitudinal variables. But conversely, those experiences can have an adverse effect if the quality or quantity of the preparation is, is lacking in that area. So just having a practicum is one thing, but it really needs to be intentionally designed um, and be a quality practicum experiences if we want to impact knowledge and attitudes of our pre-service learners. So you're saying that simply sending your kids to Special Olympics might not meet it shots fired at Special Olympics. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sure, just sending, you know, students to, to any experience, really. I think there are some key um, characteristics of effective practicum that really need to be incorporated into a practicum experience, especially one that's, that's founded on a theory such as contact theory to make sure that you are kind of hitting all those bases and hitting those important experiences that you want for your students to obtain through those practicum experiences. So I've noticed, and, and I think even myself, just kind of reflecting, like, what is the purpose of these things, right? And, and as you mostly have all said, like a lot of times this is one course that, that students are getting, and maybe they're not going to be adapted PE teacher, you know, they're going to be in a kinesiology related area. So this is their only meaningful exposure in their college preparation programs to disability. So I have a few questions based off that. And, and you know, it, are, are these practicum experiences, you know, I'm always fearful that students are going to have a negative interaction or I have my students interacting with teachers and, you know, it, it, there's so many kind of confounding factors I can't control um, to their experience. So, you know, my first kind of question is, are these practicum experiences a strong avenue to introduce our undergraduates to people with disabilities? And, and, and you know, if so, you know, why? I'll take a stab at that. I think I understand the question as being, you know, are practicum experiences meaningful? And, and why are they meaningful? Is that correct? Okay. Um, so yes, I think practicum experiences can be very meaningful. Um, you know, many of my students, so my students are fortunate to have two practicum experiences within the PEAT major. And really their first time coming into an AP practicum, many of them have not had any experience interacting with, knowing with, or especially teaching anybody, much less somebody with a disability. Um, so I think contact theory really applies to my students in that first time that they're in their practicum uh, experience because I think their learning and the outcomes that I'm looking for for my students in their first experience are different than the outcomes I'm expecting for my students in their second experience. Um, I think in terms of their first experience, it's really a, a time where I focus on kind of that attitude change 
when trying to develop a positive, you know, positive efficacy, positive dispositions. Um, whereas in the second experience that my students have in their senior year, um, during that practicum experience, uh, it's really intentionally designed to achieve outcomes related to developing pedagogical skills and professional dispositions. And so I think, um, yes, I think having just a practicum experience can be very meaningful for our students and can be influential. Again, I think it comes back to the design of the practicum and what outcomes the instructor or the director is looking for as a result of that practicum experience. So you're intentionally uh, attempting to create positive attitudes before you're going towards the knowledge and skills that are necessary. Yeah, that's just the way my practicum experience has been constructed. Um, it's been scaffolded in that way. And my students, the undergraduate students have different roles and responsibilities during their times in each of those experiences, um, which allows me to be very intentional in scaffolding that and looking for different outcomes along the way. Um, you know, my students in their first practicum experience are in kind of their pre-major coursework part. So they have not yet received coursework in, in pedagogical skills and knowledge. They don't really know what content knowledge is, many of them. Um, they've not had any opportunities within our program to do supervised teaching. So this is their first time with that. So I personally don't feel that I can expect my students at that level of experience and coursework to come in and you know that I expect that they have that those pedagogical skills that I'm looking for out of my seniors who have had time to learn and develop those skills. Um, so yeah, my practicum is, is very much scaffolded differently depending on the level and the experience of my pre-service teachers. One of my my thoughts too is I have my students, um, you know, we can talk generally about these these practicum programs. You know, I have my students, I think, meet with students between six and eight times and they do 30 to 45 minute lessons, right? Um, you know, and in one of my thoughts is so you know obviously it's whatever we can do to try to lift attitudes, but you know, I don't think that's enough to send somebody out in the world or to really break any real, other than maybe some surface level barriers. And so to me, what are, what are specific and realistic outcomes that we can hope to achieve from these, these programs? I can uh, take a stab at that one. So um, this is actually kind of where my research has, you know, been involved with service learning. I, uh, my colleagues and I recently conducted a meta-analysis looking at the effect of adapted physical activity service learning specifically on college student attitudes. Um, so I can really speak to that, but we had to read a lot of papers to be able to see like the comprehensive effect of um, service learning and, um, you know, research and studies have shown that involvement with one term, uh, usually 10 to 20 hours of contact or even less, um, has like with that college students or pre-service pre professionals have demonstrated really a number of outcomes, namely improved or more favorable attitudes, more favorable attitudes towards including students with disabilities in, in their teaching, uh, improved teacher self-efficacy, even improved interest in just working with children with disabilities in the future or people with disabilities. We, we do see that there's positive outcomes, even with that amount of time that you, you only may get from one term. I agree. Um, and we also do see that longer, um, there's actually kind of some inconsistencies over whether, you know, time 
in a certain amount of time versus a longer amount of time consistently leads to po more positive effects. And the meta-analysis that we conducted, we looked at contact time um, and duration of the program as a variable that could moderate the effects. And we actually didn't find that there was any significant difference. Um, that's not necessarily the truth. Um, just a note about meta-analysis is that it is limited to the studies that are published on that topic. So we definitely, with more research, may see that there's an ideal amount of time that like, you have to get to get a, suffic a sufficient change in your attitudes or other outcomes. But I think that that is still something that we could learn more about, or at least I can. Um, other people might have different. That's a callback from our last episode, Byron Lee from UAB to find what a meta-analysis was in our last episode. <laughs> so thank you. So I mean, we can keep talking about realistic outcomes and such, because to me, you know, learning and attitude change are so hard to kind of guide at times. So, you know, and there's so much incidental things, but, you know, I, I'm a APE instructor at a, at a university and, you know, um, it, contact theory is not my area of specialty, like the three people I'm seeing in front of me. I don't explicitly apply it to my program. And it's something I've learned, you know, whatever, retroactively. Would our practicums improve through the application of this learning theory? How can we do this? And, and, and why might it be important to do it? So what I think is really interesting about contact theory, and when you were just talking about meta-analysis and it reminded me of a really great contact theory meta-analysis and the little it's from 2006 so it's slightly dated but um Pettigrew and Tropp in 2006 did a meta-analysis on contact theory and one of the findings from it was that um, positive outcomes for the intergroup contact could be achieved without all four conditions present. And so it could be that there was only one or two conditions present depending on the environment of the contact. And while in that meta-analysis, it also indicated that, that a significantly higher mean effect size was achieved if all four conditions were present. So I guess I'll add that as well. But um, I think the good news is that it did also show that you didn't need all four, that you could also see some positive outcomes uh, with just a couple. And so in my mind, when I think about the service learning experiences as they relate to contact theory or whether or not contact theory is being brought to life through these service learning experiences, I think that that from the start, you automatically meet the support from authority. And I think you automatically, if structured thoughtfully, as Andrea was talking about, I think you automatically meet the meaningful interactions um, if structured appropriately when you're having the in-group and the out-group interact meaningfully. And so to me, if you've already got those two and then cooperative pursuance of common goals, I mean, you know, that's, that's if you're setting up goals and objectives for your students to bring to life through learning plans while working with students with disabilities. So you've, it's meaningful, but then while it might be structured so that the, the, the college student is guiding the, the uh, work towards the goal, right, and interacting with the student in more of a, a mentor or teacher relationship, I think 
you could still say that there is a cooperative pursuance of common goals there if there's some hands like working together anyhow. So I think that it really just leaves equal status as the one that maybe isn't being applied exactly as written. But again, you could argue that it's being applied in just that shift in perspective or shift in paradigm through which we see individuals with disabilities who in this case are the outgroup um, in terms of contact theory. So um, I, I think that it's great news that that you don't need all four necessarily. You could see really positive income so or outcomes. And with that in mind, then thoughtfully planned and executed service learning programs, again, as already mentioned, um, are bringing it to life in some form. This is probably one of my favorite topics or favorite conversations within this topic because I think that, again, this goes back to just I, there is such a tremendous amount of variability between programs and service learning experiences and the way that these conditions or contact conditions are or are not applied. You know, I at Oregon State, I for the for two years, I was the coordinator of our service learning program called Impact, and um, I got to see a lot of interactions between people with and without or college students and the kiddos in our in our program, and you see the differences in, um, you know, the interactions that are following those optimal contact conditions, and when they're actually working towards something, you know, the, the student is maybe providing choices and autonomy, and they're actually working together, um, versus those pairings that might, like, the goal was for you to throw this ball, so you have to throw the ball or else I'm not doing my job. And then you see like they're no longer, they're kind of being guided on this power struggle as opposed to working towards something. And the differences in how those two different students leave those two different situations, like you can see it. You can see that this student like was really motivated by it. They were really encouraged. They're gonna probably return back the next week and you know, really feel empowered by that. And then the other case, like, I don't want to come back to impact. I don't want to, you know, I, I need help with this child. I, I really, you know, didn't have a positive interaction. So while I agree um, that some of those contact conditions can be so powerful, I think that um, they also can tend to reinforce negative attitudes when unequal rank in particular is not prioritized or at least considered at the beginning. Um, and I loved what Kathy said about thinking about contact theory before you have contact, which I think that's kind of where as a field, at least in what I've read in research, um, we may be missing the mark quite a bit. Um, in that same meta-analysis that I was talking about, um, we looked at theoretical foundation um, as a moderating variable as well. And only about half of the studies actually referenced a theoretical foundation in the intro somewhere, with only two of them referring to contact theory. And it really, we couldn't, we couldn't pinpoint in the study where they actually applied contact theory. It seemed more of like a afterthought or potentially even like an explanation for contact, but not necessarily a underlying framework for the study or for the intervention. So 
I think that like, if we're going to try to improve attitudes, if we're going to consider contact theory, it has to really be done from the get-go and just be thought about repetitively and not, not just as a explanation or, or even for, this might be unpopular opinion, but for publication purposes either. So. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Lainey. And, and thinking back to the conversation that you talked about a little while ago about contact time, um, you know, I think that's one thing that we don't have an answer for yet. Like, is there a certain amount of time? Is there a magic pill that is going to help us to improve attitudes and pedagogical skills? Um, you know, we don't have that answer. And looking at different programs, you know, curricular space is always a challenge, right? So when we have a limited amount of time within a practicum or service learning opportunity, I think it's really important that learning is, is maximized and that time is really maximized that we do have. And I think that's the beauty of using a theory such as contact theory as a foundation or a framework for a practicum experiences, or for, sorry, for a practicum experience, because I think using a theory as a foundation like contact theory allows us to move beyond merely providing exposure to individuals with disabilities and be much more intentional in the design so that we can achieve additional outcomes on top of the attitude and outcomes, um, but also achieving outcomes related to the development of pedagogical skills, knowledge and professional dispositions instead of leaving it to chance, like Lainey said, and kind of using it as an afterthought of how did we meet this theory, but if we can go in and design theory, I'm sorry, if we can go in at the beginning and design practicum very intentionally based on a theory, we hopefully can move past that just exposure into actually development of skills and outcomes. I think the other piece, which is really interesting, is when you have a solid service learning program, as many universities do, that they've been doing year after year, and it's pretty... Um, well thought out and, and executed is that this idea of if we're saying, or if we want to meet contact theory and we're saying we're bringing contact theory to life, then you can look at the fidelity of implementation of the program to contact theory. So uh, to say, okay, does, does this service learning program um, measure the construct of contact theory and allowing you to control and explain the manner in which that program satisfies the four components of contact theory. I, I've been able to, to do this fidelity criteria and fidelity of implementation with the um, education and awareness programs that I work with, with Paralympic School Day and with Paralympic Skill Lab. And it's been really fascinating to see, um, to be able to say this actually is bringing contact theory to life. And so I think for a future research idea <laughs> um, is to be able to look at some of these service learning programs, which are already in the research body of research, a great number now to be able to say, okay, we have this service learning program. Does it meet the components of contact theory? Let's look at the fidelity of implementation. I think that'd be a really great research topic to be able to further this idea. Oh, I, I think we got three people that want to collaborate together here. So um, I, I wanted to, okay. So I, I want to go back to, and uh, about that equal status thing. I think the equal status thing sounds like it's like uh, among all three of you kind of it's a we don't know how maybe to do it. It sounds like in at least in this setting and I'm just thinking, you know, like how can we do it? And, and to me when I'm thinking about this, I just feel like and is it even appropriate because like, okay, we're talking about physical activity, which is a unique setting. We're talking about disability, which is a unique group. And then we're talking about many times teacher education programs. So should a teacher and a student be true equals? Is that even something that we want? 
you know, uh, so so I'm, I guess I'm just kind of, you know, thinking aloud a little bit and, 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 you know, can we apply it? Should we apply it? How do we apply equal status? It sounds like it's a really important thing, but how do we do it? That is, uh, once again, uh, I will try my best to answer that question because I think that's a little bit, it's difficult to answer. And, and I personally don't know the answer. Um, I think that you're pretty spot on, at least in my experience with, you know, how does equal status really, how can it be incorporated into a teacher education program when, you know, if you think about the word service learning, someone is being provided a service. So just inherently, like that notion, at least in our society and through our social norms, like when you're providing a service or you're providing care or you're providing support, that sometimes can just naturally, you know, make those ranking or make the status less equal. So I think you're right. Um, I probably will never go and say, you know, there's no way that we can do this. I think that at some point through enough research, there will be strategies that I think that can be both like be effective in training teachers and and producing uh, high quality child outcomes while also being um, effective in changing attitudes. And I mean, for what I know of teaching strategies, I, I tend to be all for autonomy supportive teaching strategies versus autonomy controlling strategies like providing choice, providing self-determination, um, individualizing instruction to the person's interest versus, you know, kind of taking the autonomy out of that because that's where we tend to see, like in my opinion, we see we tend to see those rankings become more equal. And we know from the literature that autonomy supportive strategies can have just as a, um, effective, if not more, effective out uh more effects on a student outcome so that is my perspective <laughs> um Gabby you can can go as well you know I find myself when when I try to break this down and thinking like can we really do equal status I think that I I like to focus on this idea that that if we're going to be equal then we're going to be more likely to be um to be uh on the same level, not superior to one another, not inferior to one another. And so like in a service learning experience, if we're talking about teacher or college students and participants who could be of any age, right? They could be service, you could be doing service learning experiences with K-12 students, but you also could be doing service learning experiences with adults with disabilities. And so it's this idea that, that we might not be equal in age or we might not be equal in uh, professional position. So uh, college student uh, versus um, our college student leader who's in an educational role, right? Versus participant, like those aren't gonna be equal. But if we could be equal in terms of ability, that would be a, a, 
a whole nother ball game. And so this idea that, that we see disability as inferior and we see able-bodiedness as superior generally as a society, that if we, if we take out all of the other aspects of equal status, this idea that of course a teacher is going to be superior in many ways to a student, of course, a, a program leader, service learning student is who's planning the program is likely going to be perceived as superior to a participant. Um, but if we cannot think about those roles and instead just focus on ability and able-bodiedness uh, versus not able-bodiedness, right? Able-bodiedness versus disability. If we can look at it that way, then I think that we absolutely can start to break down some of the barriers to um, that equal status. Or I think we can achieve equal status by change in the paradigm or shifting the paradigm through which we see disability. So I, it's a it's a slippery slope perhaps for many people who research or utilize contact theory, but I really do believe in our society, at least here in the US, um, which is vastly different than the way um, able-bodiedness and disability is, is perceived in other countries. But if we're speaking of the US, which is, I mean, where I think all four of us have our... <laughs> most experience. If we're speaking of our societal norms, I think we absolutely can apply equal status um, with these service learning experiences, because if it's shifting that paradigm of society's standards of able-bodiedness being superior, then I think we are achieving what we're hoping to achieve. Yeah, that was great. You know, in, in one other caveat maybe is in my mind too, I'm just thinking about physical activity setting seems like a specific place too. And we make a lot of hierarchies based on uh, the athleticism or even sport that somebody wants to do sometimes. So it's unique setting as well there, but yeah, that's that, those are great thoughts. My, my last question to you all is, so moving away from the service learning component, which I think has been like the best documented in the areas that you're most, but I, I think that we could maybe apply this, this concept to other areas within our field. So how do practicing APE teachers or APA practitioners apply contact theory to their own context? I mean, I, I think that this is kind of a, a, a little bit of a broad question. I think that each situation is different um, and implementing contact theory as you know a service learning coordinator is going to be very different from implementing contact theory as a PE teacher APE teacher just because we're dealing we're, we're working with different people um, and the contact is between different people so I think that you know at, at the most basic level or at least the first step is really to reflect on what optimal contact, is in your own situation and think about those optimal contact conditions beforehand, like we talked about. And, you know, even ask yourself questions about how, how you're teaching or how in your situation, how does, how is each condition being met? Kind of like what Kathy was talking about in terms of fidelity check, like give yourself a fidelity check of, you know, Am I, when I'm teaching students, am I, you know, um, encouraging them or advocating for intergroup contact, or am I just allowing them to work with the same group of people or their friend group every single activity? Or um, am I actually encouraging students within different groups to interact with each other during my class? Or like asking questions like that and then 
I think is a is at least a first step to starting to apply um, contact theory to individual situations. I agree. And I think sometimes for practitioners and, and APA professionals, APE professionals, to really be able to think about the four components, not just as how do I implement them, but how do I not, imp- like, how do I break them apart so that I make sure I'm not supporting or advancing um, what the components don't mean, right? Like, so the opposite. And so when you think about like the equal status versus superior and inferior, you think about meaningful collaborative content ver- contact versus limited interactions. You know, like I would imagine right away, a faculty member supporting a thoughtful and engaging service learning experience would be able to identify that, gosh, I meant for this to be set up so that there's a lot of meaningful collaborative contact, but it would appear they're actually not collaborating or it's actually limited contact with with those students with disabilities. Well, if that's the case, I would imagine most program planners would shift that and shift it and make the changes. But you know, if you if if you have trouble unpacking what exactly contact theory is, I think sometimes it's useful to think, okay, well, what is it not? <laughs> and then to be able to uh, to reach um, what it is by not doing the opposite. Um, and you know, I'm I'm going to be slightly uh, ridiculous in referencing my own research, but there is a really great practitioner-based article that's in Palestra from a number of years ago that is exactly that. It's unpacking contact theory, and it was written so that practitioners, so that all of us don't have to become um, so knowledgeable on contact theory and read 20 research papers, but instead, let's just look at how do we bring this to life in physical activity and physical education, or really education settings in general. And it, it um, I mean, I'm using it as a reference during this podcast. So I, for my own you know, knowledge, I mean, it really is written in a way that lets us see, okay, how do I bring this to life in a really simple way? So um, apologies for being that person on the podcast, but it's, it is a, it's a, pretty great article, uh, simple, short and sweet. Andrea is the only one not to have cited her paper, one of her papers yet, so <laughs> you're okay. And Andrea, right, you're more than free to, <laughs> so. All good, I'll actually support, uh, Kathy, I love that you brought up that paper that you wrote because I do think it is very you know, straightforward. I think it's clear. I think it simplifies contact theory uh, in that way. So I'm glad that you did mention it. And I think you know, one of the beauties of you know that question and one of the strengths of the the practical article that Kathy's referencing uh, is that potentially educational settings within schools are an ideal place to apply contact theory. And I think those same considerations that we discussed before about, you know, when we were talking about practicum and intentionally designing practicum from the start with contact theory in mind, um, you know, if we can promote practicing teachers and adapted physical activity and physical education specialists to do the same thing, to plan you know, their classes, their experiences in those educational settings with contact theory in mind from the beginning, that's an ideal place, I think, to really implement contact theory. Because I think, you know, we've had a lot of discussion during this time about that piece of equal status being challenging when we're working with, you know, adults working with children. Um, But if we're also along the same lines, teaching our pre-service students to then implement contact theory when they're the teacher in the field, how can they promote that equal status and those common goals and cooperative activities when they're teaching among students with and without disabilities in school-based settings. Um, so I think there's almost a dual layer here, but I think those, those school-based settings might be a great place uh, to really promote contact theory and apply it 
to our teaching and to teaching in those settings. Absolutely. I, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, concept. And I almost wonder if it almost, you know, you know, we say the word inclusion a lot, you know, as, as you know, sometimes it's a little bit of a buzzword and not always, you know, what is it, what is it? And, you know, all those questions of can we, or should we, you know, how do we measure it? Um, and I wonder if, if in some ways contact theory could at least give some type of maybe more concrete guiding framework on how to try to achieve it um, in those settings, um, you know, at least attempting to, I don't know, do they, could they align with each other? I'm not sure. Um, but You know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I found myself thinking as I was referencing that my own article, that the title of it relates to supporting inclusive education. And in many ways, it probably could say in integrated education. Um, and, and perhaps it should at this point, based upon what some of the uh, definitions are indicating or how we're using those in the research. So um, it kind of made me chuckle when I pulled the article back up and was like, oh gosh, maybe the title is incorrect at this point. But nonetheless, I think that it definitely can speak to integration and inclusion, regardless of where you fall under, under or where you fall in those kind of research philosophies or programmatic philosophies. I think contact theory has a role or could play a role in both if we're talking about integrated PE settings or if we're talking about inclusive PE settings, depending on which you prefer to use. Yeah, I agree. And I, um, you know, I was just thinking as you were saying that, Kathy, that, you know, we are in the APA field and adapted physical education field. So we're focused on disability, but there's, you know, in an integrated class setting, there's a lot of different identities of students. Um, and I think that knowing that contact theory is also applicable to other identities and other, you know, differences in people or in kids, I think that it is very applicable because it could be a way to introduce and improve attitudes towards other, you know, other students and people with disabilities, that's not their only identity. They have other races, other sexual orientations, other religions, everything. So I think that it's actually, um, I mean, I'm biased because I like contact theory, but I think it's a great, um, a great theory to consider on from a lot of different angles. I agree. I find myself telling my students in all of my introduction, like first day of class introductions, when I talk a little bit about the research I do, I always say that if we could all apply contact theory in all of the different aspects of our lives, we probably would well, not probably we would live in a much kinder and more kinder and more accepting society, because regardless of the differences we perceive, we would be able to find the commonalities and the common ground that make us actually way more similar than we than we think or accepting of differences if we're not similar. And so I, I think contact theory could make the world a better place for sure. And I'll agree with both of you. I love the turn that this conversation has taken uh, for that because it really, you know, draws us back. We we're talking a lot about implementing contact theory within our own practicum and you know, work walking our students through those pieces of contact theory. But I love the the turn this conversation has taken in terms of promoting and educating our students on the use of contact theory within their future teaching uh, it can be equally, if not more, effective potentially. I think that would be really ideal. I, you know, I, I'm always trying to more like connect things to actual theoretical components in our edu our teacher education programs. 
trying teacher education programs to be so based on trial and error versus theory and, and those ideas, it sounds like a really good idea. Um, I would love to see that. Well, you know, I, I've taken all your time and, and um, I appreciate you giving me your time and, and having this awesome conversation. I learned a lot. So um, uh, thank you again for coming on the podcast and, and, and thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it was really fun. I was, I'm very excited to uh, hear how it turns out and just to be a part of this. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Always so great to see you and all these great